radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul. Cyberspace is the place that only a human being locates. Where there's so much information to chase, there you enter an entirely new phase. Once you get on the internet, become worldwide web. It's a new Welcome world to the Cyberspace Sanctuary. A safe house for your mind. I'm your host and facilitator, Junius Ricardo Stanton, inviting you to stay tuned for interesting interviews, news you can use, and programming designed with you in mind. Free your mind, the rest will follow, right here on the Cyberspace Sanctuary, on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Gold. Cyberspace is the place. Cyberspace is the place. We're all in this thing together. We gotta work it out. We gotta work it out. We're all in this thing together. 
racist, Professor Griff. You're listening to Junius, Ricardo Stanton. Straight up, we're teaching you all those things you need to know from the neck up, all right? We're definitely doing a checkup from the neck up. This is Professor Griff from Public Enemy, the ex-minister. I'm out. Peace. Welcome to the Cyberspace Sanctuary, a safe house for your mind. On the Blake Radio Network's Rainbow Soul. My name is Junius Ricardo Stanton. I'm your host and facilitator. And we welcome you to this edition. We have an outstanding program for you. It's a, a, a an un, it's an unusual situation. We're turning the table, so to speak. We're going to share the audio from the Solari Report, which is a an internet program hosted and produced by Catherine Austin Fitz, who is a longtime friend and a very tenacious soul who is determined to make a difference in the world economically, socially, and spiritually. She's a former Wall Street executive with the Dylan Reed investment firm. She was a managing partner there. She's been in the federal government. She was an undersecretary of housing and urban development. And she began to see the nexus between criminality, fraud, corruption, and left the government, began to work on ways to make the economy more equitable, to make home ownership more reachable. And then she got caught up in the tailwind of the beginnings of the housing bubble when they were making plans for that way back in the 90s. And, uh, of course, when you run afoul of the nefarious agenda, uh, they went after her. And so she was targeted and her company was targeted. She had to go through a lengthy court battle. Unfortunately for her, she had the resources and the money to fight and she won. And now she spends her time advising and developing alternatives and new ways to invest money and to grow and stimulate a, I would say, a positive economy. I'll put it that way. For more information, you can go and check out the Solari Report yourself. That's S-O-L-A-R-I Report and check it out. You can uh, type her name in in your browser and check her out. I've had her on the program numerous years. I met her in 2002 and she turned the tables on me. And I want to share with the Rainbow Soul audience this giant in terms of a truth teller, a truth seeker, a whistleblower, and someone who has the best interest of the planet at heart. You don't find too many of them. We're out here, but very rarely do we speak up. And so it's my pleasure, uh, and I don't mean this in a self-serving way, to show you that Rainbow Soul, what we're doing here, is not the only venue, obviously, but just to show you what some other folks are doing and how they're making a difference, not only on the Internet doing radio, but also doing magnificent work on the field, on the ground, and in the communities. So stay tuned for the Solari Report here on the Cyberspace Sanctuary, a safe house for your mind. You're listening to the Cyberspace Sanctuary, a safe house for your mind, on the Blake Radio Network's Rainbow Soul. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to welcome to the Solaire Report an independent fellow, independent media producer, Junius Ricardo Stanton, the host of the Digital Underground and Cyberspace Sanctuary. And in fact, this Solaire Report is going to be a joint production of the Cyberspace Sanctuary and the Solaire Report. So we're going to we're going to run it both ways. And um, I got very frustrated with the really sort of venal divide and conquer tactics going on over the last two months. And so I sat down and said, we just have to address this. And so we're calling this unpacking divide and conquer. And I thought there's only one other person I really trust to dive in and tee this up and, and pull it apart and talk about what we can do about it. And that's Junius. So Junius, thank you so much for doing this and welcome to the Solari Report. Well, thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to hear from you. I haven't heard. We haven't spoken in a couple of years, so it's good to hear. I know. I know. I think the last time was when I did your, the last time I did your show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, I'm, I, you and I both. And Philly, but you had something, your, your plans fell through. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping to see you. Anyway, so you and I have a lot of interest in common, and and uh, maybe if you could describe a little bit your background, particularly how it how it is you you came to be a producer of your own radio show. I'm sure 20 years ago you never thought you'd do that. <laughs> well, believe it or not, I always wanted to be in radio. I always I wanted to be a disc jockey, and uh-huh. uh, I guess as I matured, I saw that playing simply playing records wasn't enough. And I, even back then in, in, in the nineties, I recognized that the African American community was being depicted very negatively. And so I wanted to present everyday ordinary people who were doing extraordinary things in a quiet way to, uh, the African American radio audience. So I started brokering time on a local black owned station. And uh, that's how I got started. I started writing to promote the radio program. And a friend of mine showed me how to, like, syndicate it to several s- small community newspapers in the Philadelphia area. And mm-hmm. I found out that more people were reading the column than were listening to the radio station because it was a small, low-wattage station. And, you know, like the a- AMers, like the, the power goes down after the sun goes down, so that made it even uh, less attractive, you know, competing with FM radio and all of that. And so then I branched out, and I was able to become syndicated with the National Newspaper Publishers Association, which is a trade association for a lot of black newspapers. And then when the Internet jumped off, I, I was able to get on a site because it was early on and it was one of the few black sites that was out there, the, the black world today. And because I had some name recognition from the newspapers and one of the producers lived in Philly, he was using my columns and, I, and his brother-in-law told me and I contacted them. And I think they thought I was going to sue them or something, but I said, no, <laughs> put, put it out there. In fact, if you want yeah. me to contribute directly, I'll do that. And that's how that started. They were already streaming about 20 genres of, of music, blues, rhythm and blues, gospel, you name it. They wanted to start a, a talk channel 
and I got on the ground floor of that, and we we, we helped them start the talk channel, and then, as they say, the rest is history. Wow. It's amazing how all of us ended up sort of, you know, the Internet gave us a, a way of just evolving into all sorts of things. Anyway, yeah, it's the... It's, a, it's funny what you say about brand, because one of the greatest frustrations when I was... Uh, I grew up at 48th and Larchwood in West Philadelphia, and first, I'll never forget, in the late 50s, when the drugs really started to come in, and then the war on drugs came in. So, so you, you know, you had the drugs coming in from outside, then you had the war on drugs coming in, and then what started in, and I, I don't know if you remember when TV first came in, but it took a couple of years of TV being out there, and suddenly the picture presented in all the... Uh, the images was that the sort of the homeowners and the small business people in our communities were to blame for everything that was happening. So the drugs and the games and the war on drugs, all that stuff was our fault. <laughs> and, and the guys who made the money were then coming back in with sort of grants and not-for-profit do-gooders and doing photo ops, you know, so they were the good guys. <laughs> And we were the bad guys. It, it was part of what later everybody started referring to as the beatdown. Mm. And it was somehow that, you know, the whole photo op game and us taking the blame in the media was the, you know, it was sort of the 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 last punch that really knocked you down. So I really appreciate what you're saying about that because it used to, you know, it took me a long time to get, my perspective on dealing with that part of the game. It was very frustrating. Yeah, because most of us don't have access to the media. We don't, we're not in the rooms when they're making their decisions. So we really don't know other than just, just anecdotally, just looking at or listening to the radio or watching television or going to the movies. And we intuitively know something's not right. It's not meshing with our reality. Right. So, yeah. Well, it got what happened, and I, uh, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I'm sure you read it. In some of the things I've written, the the basic fraud in the housing bubble in the last sort of go round, where you know you do ten mortgages on one house and you keep turning that house, uh, you know, and it's a combination of narcotics trafficking and mortgage fraud. But it was the same. That was the pattern that basically destroyed the value in my parents' house. And or most of the equity value in my parents' house. It's sort of the game I saw in our neighborhood, although it wasn't as vicious as it has been in a lot of others. And it's kind of an old game. And it got me very interested in how the money worked on, you know, on destroying neighborhoods. But part of it was how the money worked on racism. And, um, you know, I've kind of spent a lifetime trying to figure out what's going on. But there's, you know, it's almost as though the way I say it is, um, they prototyped the model on black neighborhoods. Black neighborhoods took it first, but now it's spreading out into into every part of the world and community. Um, and I don't know if you agree with that, but I, I kind of feel like the African-American community took the punch first, and but now it's spreading out everywhere like a virus. Well, we're the canaries in the mines here in the country. Uh, Sort of. I, I agree with, with what you're saying, but if you go back historically, before the importation of a lot of Africans, 
the people who took the punch were the what they called the indentured servants that were brought here. So they, right. I mean, they would have served and they got, they were the ones who were dogged out in, in England. And particularly when England invaded Ireland and what they were doing to the Welsh and, and the Scots. And when they brought them here, they were on the bottom. And they, right. And they were, sla- and they were slaves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were literally slaves. Yeah. And so when they brought in the, the Africans, because they, could not enslave the indigenous inhabitants because they knew the land better than the colonists did, and they could run away or fight. Uh, they soon found that the white and black slaves were mingling together, working together because the conditions were the same. They were horrible. And uh, they started rising up in ways that were either formal or informal, and they had to come up with a way to stop that. And so that's when they began to uh, eliminate the importation of what they call the indentures and import more Africans. And they had to break up that potential coalition against them because there there are several historical incidents where they came together and did confront the colonial regimes. Uh, whether it was in Virginia and then there was in the, in 1800s, there was a early 1800s, there was a, a rumor of a, a riot in New York and, and of course they went crazy. And, uh, and of course the blacks took the brunt of it, but they, they, they arrested and, 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 uh, punished whites also. So that, that pattern of divide and conquer goes way back to like the 1600s here in the United States. Right. I I will say this the the toughest um you know sort of the toughest beatdowns I see are when you start to unpack the divide and conquer. So when I get the most hassle, it's when I'm doing something that kind of, you know, cro- you know builds bridges or you know and into effective action like I did in the 90s or um you know I think back to the 60s, you know, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King didn't get shot until they started doing crossover stuff. Right. You know, as long as they stayed with black issues, you know, they were untouched. And as soon as they started to do major crossover, that was it. Right. So, so (laughs) who was, I forget who said it, you know, uh, if you're a politician, it's safe to talk about hate. It's, it's, you know, it's not safe to talk about love. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's even less safe to talk about common ground and the uh, things that we have in common, particularly with relationship to the ruling class, because right. they are paranoid about being exposed. That's, that's why I was so happy to see the Occupy movement. Number one, because they were younger, younger people. They were... Uh, Telling folks what was going on, they were doing education, and it, to right. me, it said, "Okay, there's there's a pulse." And they were they were in Philly anyway. They were predominantly white, but they were very accommodating to the to the blacks that came, and um, and and I was encouraged by it. But then at, I saw what they were doing to them, and I, I was uh, I was alarmed when they 
shut them down the way they shut them down nationwide. And that was a, that was really a precursor to, uh, what we're seeing, uh, now. Well, let me step back to the nineties. Um, you know, I won't go all the way back to the beginning of the drugs because the drugs really came in, you know, after World War II. It's interesting. I just wrote a commentary for the blog on the U.S. I read a book this weekend that included a very detailed description of the Bretton Woods system that went into effect in 44, where the U.S. just opened their consumer market to countries all around the world and guaranteed a sort of global trading model. And one of the things that happened with that is they opened their consumer or our consumer markets up to narcotics trafficking. And that was the real beginning of, you know, a a major shift up in the global trade. And, of course, you know, one of my theories is that that cash flow was instrumental in financing the black budget. And so there was a huge business, um, you know, that got levered with mortgage fraud and financial fraud, but became very profitable bringing narcotics trafficking. And of course, in in the 60s, it hit the black neighborhoods first. Um, but in the 90s, one of the things I was doing was I had discovered, you know, when, when we when we realized what was going to happen with the World Wide Web, I realized, you know, there is no reason that we can't um, teleport jobs into into low-income communities because if you look at the economics of of most communities a lot of it revolves around the real estate and and the real estate pricing revolves around the income flows within the community so if incomes are rising the real estate particularly because you can leverage it is a you know is a huge potential for investment capital gains anyway so I said, well, this is great. You know, we can just buy real estate cheap and we'll, we'll teleport the jobs in and the value of the real estate will go up and this makes great economic, you know, there's all sorts of opportunity with the internet. And, um, one of the first things I did, I drove around the country to talk to people about potential data servicing sites in all sorts of communities. And one of the things I discovered was that 10 bucks an hour plus healthcare buys almost everybody out of dealing drugs. <laughs> and, uh, part of the problem of what we were doing was, you know, we were competing with the narcotics business. Now it turns out also what they wanted to do was play the subprime mortgage game. And the reality was if everybody in the community is looking at how the financial flows work, it, it's not going to take long for them to figure out there are more mortgages outstanding than their houses in the community, which was part of the problem. But you know, it was during a period when we saw the private prisons grow and the mandatory sentencing grow. And what came up, which I've described in my article and online book, Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits, was a model where 10 Americans were working their whole life to pay for one person to be put in jail. And so you, you had a model that was both a prison for two million plus Americans now we're the leading right. mm-hmm. you know country in the world for prisons, but um we're also putting all the taxpayers in financial prison because the you know it it's it's basically a you know a slavery system anyway but um let me just say one other thing I was in Washington, and when this was happening, they were dropping SWAT teams into low-income communities, mostly black communities, and just rounding up kids. And they cut the 
money on the public defender's office so that the kids essentially couldn't get representation and had to cop pleas, and that was part of what they used to stuff prisons and was part of what they used to sort of gentrify some of these communities. But basically what we were watching, Junius, was, you know, was nothing other than what the Nazis were doing with slave labor camps because those kids were going into prisons where they were then subbed out by the Department of Justice Unicor Company, which markets prison labor to the uh, agencies, particularly the DOD. So you had a whole lot of financial engineering and legal engineering that made it look all complex. But the reality is there's no difference between what we were doing and what the Nazis were doing. And it was part of why I left Washington. Um, and I think it's pretty fair to say that the black community saw what was going on, but the wider the wider society really didn't. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that and that uh, created problems, because, and that uh, spurred the importation of weapons, the guns and the drugs. And just to uh, amplify what you said, in the 70s, late 60s and 70s, um, some young black servicemen came back from Vietnam when they got out of the service and they saw what was happening with in one housing project, the Richard Allen housing project. And so they rose up to, to try to stop it, you know, just to be like guys taking responsibility for their community. And the druggies beat them down, you know, bombed some of their homes, they, they shot, shot at them and, and drove them out. So what you saw was an escalation of the violence. So in addition to the financial infrastructure that you're talking about, then you had the escalation of the violence, which helped fuel the war on, on crime. And that became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the, as you well know, parts of Philadelphia look worse than they root Lebanon as a result of the of the violence and the the various uh, infighting amongst the various uh, drug groups, and the, the the community was under siege, and there was no help anywhere. Right, you're on your own. Yeah, you're on your own, and it was interesting. And I was thinking of um, uh, ways to give examples of. Um, commonality and uh, where blacks and whites have worked together. And I was, it just came to, remember Frank Rizzo? Uh-huh, I do. Okay. Now, you remember what the type of reputation he had early on in his career and when he first ran, when he first ran for mayor. And then when he tried to run again the second time, he lost. And then the third time was in, the, I believe, the early 90s when crack cocaine was devastating the African-American community. And you you were born and raised. Remember Novella Williams? Because she, she didn't live too far from where you, you guys were. She was a community activist in West Philly. No, I didn't know her. Okay, well, she they begged Frank Rizzo to do something about the crack cocaine epidemic at a uh, community rally and he went 
to uh, solicit the support of some black clergy, and he was confronted by Lavella Williams, who, whom he knew, and they implored him to do something about the crack cocaine. He agreed to it. He left and went back downtown and had a heart attack. So I don't know if that's coincidental or you know, fatal heart attack. I don't know if that was coincidental or they knew that because he was the type of guy, if he said he was going to do something, he did it. He would uh, get it done. Yeah. I, You know, that may not have been coincidental. There was, you know, I, I think if you if you look at who engineered the crack cocaine epidemic, if you look at how it worked, if you look at, you know, I spent a lot of time in, since the 90s when the effort we made failed. Um, to really try and understand how the how the networks work down into a community, and it's very tricky because, of course, as you know, it's uh, bipartisan and it's it's one place where there's a lot of racial cooperation. If you look at one of the guys who was dropping the SWAT teams in in uh, in Washington in the '90s, it was Eric Holder. <laughs> so, so what? That's why he is where he is now. Yeah, he's where he is now because he did a great job of fronting the whole model, you know, fronting the the sort of the war on drugs game and, you know, fronting, God, you know, I'm always having people trying to tell me what he was up to on, on Fast and Furious. <laughs> so, but but he's done a great job of fronting the whole model, which is why watching Eric Holder and Ferguson try and bring justice to the people is you just want to tear your hair out. But, um, uh, you know, what I see is to the extent like around here, most of the drug gangs are African-American. You know, my, I just assume now as a matter of practice that I'm looking at the local distributors for the CIA and the Department of Justice. And that's why if you look at why the, you know, places where I live, gun ownership is such a huge issue. Because we have one protection against that group, and that's our guns. It has nothing to do with the fact that we're white and they're African-American. It has to do with the fact that we're independent, you know, landowners trying to survive here on very low incomes. And they're working for the guys who are bringing the drugs and the guns into this neighborhood who, you know, go all the way back to the top. So it depend on the police to protect you. So. What else are you going to do? Well, we have a great sheriff, but, you know, as a practical matter, from the time you call, it's 45 minutes because it's a, it's a big county and it's sparsely populated. Right. So, so you know, and it's funny because I can just see the media coming into this place and making it out to be a racial issue. It's got nothing to do with race. It's got to do with who's working for the Matrix and who's not on any given situation. But you know so, what? The one element, and, and of course, um, this goes back to historic times, and I was looking at some of that. Uh, what they did to the Irish, they prevented, uh, it, this, even in Ireland, the British prevented them from owning uh, weapons. They prevented them, if they were Catholics, from uh, participating in, in the legislature and all that. So they replicated that here in America with black people. Right. And even up until the 60s, and that's one of the reasons they went after Robert Williams, because as the head of the NAACP, he advocated gun ownership. He advocated 
you know, like uh, gun clubs, self self defense clubs, and they couldn't have that. Right. And um, that's why they went after. They didn't go after them, but believe it or not, um, information has has been revealed that Martin Luther King employed when, when he went to certain places the deacons for justice and defense, which were African-Americans who had been in the military, who believed in, in self-defense, just like your community does. They right. had guns, and they were there as peacekeepers. So the myth that he was told a total pacifist is not true. He, right. At least when he went into those areas, they, they offered a form of protection that even the Ku Klux Klan had to respect because they, they knew that they weren't joking. Williams was a Solari hero one week because of all of his work on that. Um, he is an incredible man. I My perception is a lot of the the early state efforts over the last five years to really prevent gun ownership is to make sure the African-American communities can't have it because right. they're targeting some of the heavily urban areas where people really do need to own guns and really do need protection. And You're you know, right. and not only that, because we're on the bottom uh, and they have always viewed us as a threat. And so anytime there's uh, even we weren't part of the ideological uh, assault. We weren't for the most part communists. We weren't, um, you know, we just, we just tried to make it and, but it was just that mindset. Okay. We pretty much defeated the indigenous population. We have them on in concentration camps. We can't, we haven't been able to do that to black people, particularly, uh, when we started migrating out from the South, you know, around right. World War II. So you're right. And, you know, as you know, from tracking uh, uh, real estate ownership, where we went, you know, a lot of times they had they, the, the properties were redlined. They had restrictive covenants. And so we were compacted in, into tight spaces. And as a result, they were heavily policed. And they're became a distrust between the police and oftentimes the community. And that has, has gotten worse as time has gone on because of the fluctuations with the economy and right. us being at the, on the bottom. And the police, you know, frankly, the police are on a squeeze because they've got, you know, there's the official reality of what they're supposed to be doing and then the pressure's on them to do something else like Rizzo. Didn't Rizzo come up through the cops? Or is he yeah. just really close to the cops? A highway guy and made his way all the way up. He was a commissioner. Right. Very popular. And he he made his rep at knocking heads and law and order. You know, we're going to keep the darkies in their place. Right. And uh, it's just that at near the end of his life, I think he mellowed a little bit. And being a, a police officer, he saw what the crack epidemic was doing to the city. Right. Right. Well, part of, um, let's, let's bring it up to, to, you know, to now, because it's really interesting. When I left Washington in 1998, a lot of what I did between 94 and 98 was 
I really felt that that there was a genocide plan underway. I had one of the deputy assistant secretaries at HUD said to me, you know, we're going to, black people are hopeless, we're going to move them out and bring in the Hispanics. And it was laid out as a plan, you know, and the, and the private prisons and mandatory sentencing, and everybody had it set up where they were going to make money on the real estate or they're going to make money on the housing bubble. And I remember trying to sort of enlist people in coming up with a different model, which is part of what we were proposing. And, and I was adamant. One, the model wasn't going to work economically. Two, if you were going to downsize the population, you know, my attitude was don't downsize people who are critical to your success. You know, if we're going to downsize, we're downsizing the wrong people here. And, um, but I was adamant that if this was allowed to happen to anybody, it was going to, you know, there was no way you're going to keep it in one community. It was going to spread out. It would, it would corrupt the whole thing. And I couldn't, I, I really couldn't get much help and support. People were terrified. And what you could tell is the white people, you know, that didn't wish the black people ill, but they were terrified of other white people. And, um, you know, it was funny. I'll never forget. Remember the March, I think it was 99. When was the March of the Promise Keepers? Uh, that was probably around 98, 99. But, you know, it was really interesting because everybody wasn't marching stayed home. They stayed back in the suburbs. And I have to tell you, I've never been in Washington where the, where the feeling of the place was so beautiful. And I was flying home with, uh, and I bumped into a guy in the airport who'd been in the march. And he was just on cloud nine. He felt it was so positive. Oh, you and then the, the march or the, or the, the, the old keepers march? Well, it was the first one. It was the, the black men who came and said, you yeah. know, we're going to do better. Yeah, that was 96, I think. Was it maybe? Yeah, it was okay. It was earlier. And, um, and, and then the backlash from that was, it was, it was kind of like it made everybody mad. <laughs> but definitely made the people that had you, the agenda that you just talked about, it made them angry because what happened, just like the uh, gentleman that, that was there, I was there, I was on cloud nine and encouraged me to get involved in the community I went, joined my fraternity's uh, mentoring program, got actively involved in that. If you look at the numbers, there was a spike in voter registration. It was, it was, it wasn't radical. It was not revolutionary. It was more, um, taking responsibility. Right. Yeah. And I can't pivot it exactly, but shortly after that, that's when gangster rap music came out or really, they really started pushing it. So that was the counter that on the ground level, on the grassroots level. Even though Minister Farrakhan had respect, they circumvented it by uh, promoting that to the younger younger males, and that and that's what we see, and that's another reason why white folks see that stuff on VH1, MTV, DET, the thug the thuggery and the, the images of the thugs and it makes them fearful and that's one of the reasons why they had the march in the first place was to say hey, we're not like that that's not who we are right but, uh you know 
perception is, is reality. Well, I think the march was a huge success in terms of perception in the white community, but you can't march every day. No. And the the rap is hitting day after day after day. Right. Right. Well, let's talk about sort of recent events because the escalation of this sort of negative brand is off the charts. And I've been amazed at the disconnect between understanding of the situation in the white community versus the black community. It's quite, the divide is quite significant. Um, but we've had the Ebola, um, the, you know, I kind of divide Ebola between the sort of game that's going on in Africa versus the game that's going here. But coming into the election, I believe the Republicans basically uh, you know, trumped up an effort to ensure they won the Senate by turning Ebola into sort of a subliminal attack on the president and the entire African-American community. It's kind of like, you know, all white people should vote for us. And I have to tell you, as a political strategy, it was phenomenally successful, which yeah. is even more disturbing. You know, I never, it's hard to get mad at the people who do this when it works. Um, but it, it reflects a profound, you know, sort of naivete in the, and frightening naivete in the voting population. And then we see, we rolled after that into Ferguson, um, which is about one of the most ridiculous sort of media hypes, um, there is, but frightening. And then of course now we have the crucifixion of Bill Cosby, um, which among, you know, I think they're, many reasons for that, but one of them is to say to all African-American celebrities, you know, stand down or else. Right. And, well, keep in mind, um, Ferguson happened a little before the media last on to Ebola, at least the Michael Brown yeah. part of it. Right. It started, it started way back then. Well, but you got to understand um, everything that you've said about the housing, everything you've said about the economics that's happening in Ferguson, it was a, a bedroom com uh, community, a suburb of, of St. Louis. It was white flight. Blacks moved out there. And the decline in the economy, their tax base shrank. And so to make ends meet, the police, issue a lot of tickets, a lot of uh, public safety and uh, ordinance citations, and that's how they generate the money. So because Ferguson is a predominantly black town now, they get the bulk of the tickets, they get the bulk of the citations, and what they're doing there is they, they'll say the court opens at 9 o'clock, but they'll open at 8.30, and then they'll close the door at 9 o'clock. So now, now you come at 9, you're late, you can't get in. So now you have a ticket, you have a citation, but you also get a failure to appear. Now you have a warrant. And so then that jump starts a fine and it allows the police to come out and arrest you. So that's what the tension is about. Michael Brown's murder and was just, you know, it was one of the proverbial straws that broke the camel's back. Right. Is that people are reacting to all of this because they see the police, and then they 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 do the Gestapo thing, 
and they, they bring out the National Guard, they bring out the militarized police, and that makes it worse. It escalates the tension. Well, but how much of the tension, in other words, if you look at the riding, how much of that riding is really people from Ferguson, and how much is it people paid to come in from outside? And that's where I'm mighty suspicious here. I would, I would say the vast majority of, of provocateurs, there is a level of frustration. But if you, if you look at what happened early on and one of the, the uh, disagreements they had with the, the governor and the police chief and the mayor, they were responsible men who said, look, we know these people. We can, we can engage them and we can control the situation. Just let us be out on the streets. And they wouldn't comply and they said, no, we're just going to deal with the um, curfew. So they shut that down. So an effort to control the community by the community people, the people who had influence in the community, was thwarted. And so that set up more tension and then it made it easier for the provocateurs to come in and agitate. And so I think that's what we're seeing now. In addition to the fact that this has been an ongoing situation for years, so it's, it's not, it wasn't just because of Michael Brown. That was just the, the trigger, the tipping point. Right. Right. So, I, you know, I, at this point, Junius, I have deep suspicions that, you know, we've gone from, or, I mean, it's always been going on, but it's reached a whole new level where you literally have media companies who have reality TV production companies whose business is to create, you know, reality TV in these ways. Mm-hmm. And it's used in a variety of ways. I mean, if you look at the hit on Bill Cosby and the way the different women are staged and, you know, give their testimony, I mean, I, I literally believe there's a reality TV production company whose job is to produce a particular kind of show and, organize and orchestrate it and their scripts and you know blah 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 we're literally watching movies well that's that's the the growing uh phenomenon because they're cheaper to produce or at least they, initially they were cheaper to produce and because you had the proliferation of cable channels they they could fill programming but right if you look at the black so-called black programming uh even even in the franchises, because the, the the Real Housewives is a franchise. There's New York, there's New Jersey, there's Miami, there's Oklahoma, there's Atlanta. Atlanta, because they're using black people, or not, we call them hood rats. They're not ghetto. They're they're glamorous and all that. So there's a there's a fascination with that. But the 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 content is the same. It's just it's ramped up. So you have the civil discord. You have the making mountains out of molehills. You have this sensationalism of everything. And that runs across the board. If you look at what's going on in MTV, VH1, the, the, those type of, of presentations, it's worse than D.W. Griffith. But it's it's the same right. thing. Mo, it's just a variation on that theme. So you're absolutely right. And the test is, in, in this uh, rush to demonize Bill Cosby, 
How many times have you seen him depicted clean-shaven, looking sane, and something that would give you pause to say, well, wait a minute, there may be something else going on here. I mean, every picture I've seen of him, with the exception of two, the one was a local piece here in Philly, and they showed him uh, when he spoke at Temple, so he was garbed with his regalia on. But everything, right. everything else, he's, he looks like a madman. Every picture right. I've seen of him, he looks deranged, he's disheveled, and his facial expressions are are such that if you just pick it up, you say, well, something's wrong with this guy. So it's obviously a hit piece. Right. So one of the things I know from having lived through a minor version, a very minor version of this, or watching it done to other people or dealing with the media when I was in Washington, is it is absolutely possible that there is not a shred of evidence or, you know, the old saying where there's smoke, there's fire. No, there doesn't have to be any fire. They can make this up out of whole cloth and do this with when there's no there there. Or there may be a little bit of there there, but, you know, they can turn a little bit of there there into, you know, something amazing. So, so the fact is he could be 100% clean as a whistle and they could be doing this. And I know that that is more than possible. So, but you have to kind of live through it and see how it's done before you can fathom that that is really the case. You know, because most people believe where there's smoke, there's fire. They just can't imagine something like this being, you know, completely concocted out of whole cloth. Well, they don't, they don't realize they can't uh, connect the dots because they're not media literate. So they don't know how, uh, say, when the United States turns on somebody, they demonize them to make it palatable to do what they're going to do to them. And in the case of Bill Cosby, I find it interesting that all this stuff happened, supposedly happened 20, 30 years ago, so the statutes of limitations are, are over, he can't defend himself in court. and They don't have to go and swear on a Bible and do any of that. Now, I'm not saying some of this may or didn't not happen. I don't know. But I know I saw him at an event. He supported a scholarship event on during Labor Day weekend. He looked, He did not look anything, and I saw him in person. And he was funny. He came out and he, he worked with the musicians. He did not look anything like he's being depicted in these still pictures in the media. So you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. If they decide to do a hit piece on you, uh, you and you have no recourse uh, because nobody's nobody's defending them. Nobody. Well, one of the one of the triggers that inspired my calling you was. Um I saw an article saying that it was being suggested that he put up a hundred million dollar uh, fund to settle all the allegations. Now you're right; there's no nobody can take him to court, so he can't address them. And the idea that this guy should should now pay a hundred million dollars to finance the hit on him—in other words, that hundred million is basically what the reality TV production show, all the attorneys, and all the different you know, quote-unquote, witnesses. So, so in other words, basically, their hit on Cosby cost $100 million, so they figured out a way to get Cosby to put up the money to pay for it. And this, of course, is the ultimate hit because, you know, I told you he had had a show of his art at the Smithsonian. You know, nothing gets the bureaucrats in Washington more jealous than something like that. 
So now they've come up with a way of suggesting that, that Cosby should pay for, you know, should finance the hit on Cosby. And it's extortion. Right. They're, they're basically saying, okay, now we've had fun. Now you pay for the fun that we've had. And, um, and of course you get that model working and it just makes it easier to do it to the next guy. Well, so, um, that was a model and I, and I, I keep going back in history because, uh, to quote, uh, Santayana, those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to relive them. That's what they did with COINTELPRO. <coughs> Excuse me. Right. And they would destroy people's reputations, uh, by leaking false information. They would, uh, set up, they would set people up. And on the extreme, with people of color, of course, they killed them. You know, like right. Hampton, Martin Luther King, Malcolm, uh, you know, Peltier still in, the, in, in jail. Uh, you know, you name it. And it was a, um, almost like a all in, you know, it was the CIA. They called it Operation Chaos. It was COINTELPRO with the FBI and it was, they probably had other names for other, other agencies. So you're absolutely right. The the thing is, they were under siege. I mean, we had them on the run, whether it was right. the peace movement, whether it was King with his march on his poor people's campaign, whether it was labor, all of those. And some of them were provocateur kind of things to just to cause disruption. But nonetheless, they were on the defensive and they couldn't defend themselves. So they resorted to, to that. So one of the things I've always wondered is if there is a way to do this which reduces the risk for the top guys instead of increases it. In other words, you know, what we all need is a way to re-engineer things that reduces everybody's risk, doesn't increase them. And, you know, a lot of the, because one of the things I was going to say is a lot of, I don't know if I've ever sent you the article I wrote about, um, uh, you know, I believe my mother was assassinated by the same folks. And, um, you know, during the litigation, I kept hoping it wasn't about old family business, but whenever they'd whack me, I'd kind of publish something to whack them back. And finally, they did one really big dirty. I said, that's okay. I'm now I'm going to tell a story about my mother's death. Whoop. <laughs> that went. So, you know, but I think one of the things that, that black folks don't appreciate is how many white folks have been assassinated. And they're, they're, they can be pretty subtle about how they do it, a.k.a. Frank Rizzo. So, um, and, and, you know, somehow uh, a lot of white folks won't admit to it because it's very damning for your social prestige to admit that that's really going on in your family. Um, but, but I think, you know, somehow everybody knows to be afraid. And I think the terror in the white community is far greater than is widely understood in either the white or the black communities, one of my theories. Yeah, but, um, I mean, think about that. All uh, white people were not members of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. And even though they were social benefits for membership, all of all of them didn't join. Right. And a lot of them were intimidated by Klan's people from doing just common, decent things because... Remember, the oppression was horrible. I mean, if you were walking down the street as a black person, you come up uh, approaching a white person, you got to step off the sidewalk and get in, in, in the mud and the dirt. Right. You know, I mean, any any type of uh, 
disrespect. But there were white people who did not want to go along with that. They were intimidated into going along with it. Right. You were run out of town. They were ostracized or, or whatever. And so, again, fear is their number one tactic. That's that's what they use to, to keep everybody afraid. One of the things, um, you know, when, when I – it's real funny because I was – Right in the thick of the worst form of the harassment in 98 when they're still trying to frame us. And I once, I said to somebody, do you know anybody that this has happened to? Cause I realized I wasn't doing very well. And so my theory was, okay, I'm going to go back and study everybody that this happened to, figure out who succeeded why and, you know, steal their tactics. So I thought, I, you know, I need some historical help here. So I started researching who else this had happened to, and I kept asking people, do you know anybody this has happened to? And they said, yeah, a lot of people, but you're the only white one. <laughs> anyway, but one of the things I knew was... Because they, 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 they called it something else. See, there were probably other white people, but they said it was... Yeah, they called it something else. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, one of the things I knew because of where I'd grown up and sort of some of my personal relationships was I knew that a lot of the knowledge I needed to succeed at what was happening was in the black community. And I ended up going to a church that had a Bible school that taught spiritual warfare. And it was, in fact, if it hadn't been for those for that church support and that education in spiritual warfare, I took, you know, it was a couple of years of classes and training. If it hadn't been for that, Junius, I would never have made it. And, you know, I had to, I had to do two things. I had to come at the whole thing spiritually and I needed the training and education, you know, to do that and to understand how to do that. And then I needed support sort of emotionally to do it. And what I had known was that that community had, you know, hundreds of years of technology and understanding about how to build a culture outside of the majority culture, you know, because I had to go outside. I had to leave everybody and everything and, you know, sort of go out in the wilderness. And, and the hardest challenge for me was how do you maintain your ability to love? And it was going back into that culture that that really supported me and helped me figure out how to do that. Without that, I would never, you know, you lose your love, that's it. You're dead. They got you. And part of it was that was in you already. That's what prompted you and led you to to that place. Even if you weren't in D.C., it would have led you somewhere. Because that right. was what you needed to survive at that point. It was your higher self telling you to, to do that. And because uh, at heart, you recognize the power of, of love and you recognize the power of spirituality. So that gave you a, an, an edge on a lot of the other people. Some folks, I mean, and, and, they, and they, they do it deliberately so folks will commit suicide. A lot of them did. Oh yeah, that's the goal. They want you. It's very important that the target fails. So you know you're trying to get. It's so much easier if they'll kill themselves, so you don't have to. You know you can only kill so many people. It's very expensive to kill a person. It causes, you know, the the herd gets their back up. So 
you're you're much better off isolating the target from the herd, getting them to kill themselves. Well, but see, inside you, there was something that led you to what you needed, not only at that time, but I maintain a life is a school, so we go through certain things to prepare us for the future, even though, you know, I know the only moment we have is now. The presumption is that we're going to be somewhere sometime in other nows. So right. that prepared you for what you're doing now. So you have the the insight to, and the, as the old folks would say, the testimony to, to not only to stand on, the foundation to stand on, but to demonstrate to other people because the, the, the sad reality is we've been betrayed in both communities so often right. that the biggest challenge is to trust each other, and that's the way they've, they've set it up because they know that if we ever come together, they're in trouble. Well, but... Is there a is there a way we can come together? Because you know, I ultimately spiritual warfare is about helping people come back into the light. So it's not about beating them; it's about helping them come back into the light too. So the thing is, you're doing it. You're doing it. I'm doing it. And and we're up against what you just talked about is this reality thing. And and it's funny because it's a subliminal message. They're telling people this is real. All this, this phoniness, all this debasement, all this decadence is real. And so, you know, it, we have to bring people to the light and say, no, it's not real. That's an illusion. But those folks are getting rewarded for that. We aren't. Right. Right. You know, in, in monetary terms, anyway. Right. Well, but, you know, I have to tell you, I don't, I don't want it. I, because I've been rich and I've been poor <laughs> on more than a couple occasions. And, um, I, I will tell you, there is nothing, you know, I never thought I would say that righteousness is sexy, but it's, um, that lifestyle is so, I'll never forget, I think I've told you the story about when a wonderful guy who was the chairman of Sally Ming when I was on the board pulled me aside and he said, you know, the time is coming, I have to join the Council on Foreign Relations. He pulled out this big, great clause, for sure. And I just said, oh, no, you know, Harry, I just uh, <laughs> don't do that. And he looked at me and he said, you know, if you don't do this, you're out forever. And I had this flash of losing my locker in the underground bunker and I thought, I don't want to be caught underground with those folks. <laughs> and my my uh you know, and I know a lot of great people who belong to the Council on Foreign Relations, so I don't I don't want to say that, that a lot of them don't know. They don't know what it really is. They they have no idea. They have no clue. You know, it took me you know, one of the benefits of going in the wilderness is I got the time to and the and the access and the information I needed to begin to start to understand, uh, you know, what was really going on. And what was amazing was how many of those folks who I interacted with, you know, who I really like, just have not a clue. And, um, uh, you know, it's hard for people to believe that, that they're remarkably naive about sort of the bigger picture, but it's true. Anyway, but I still, I still believe, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever seen the movie The NeverEnding Story? No. 
There's a, a scene where the, uh, you know, the evildoer is constantly torturing the hero, and, uh, the hero has five wishes to get, uh, uh, to implement before they lose their ability to go back and leave the Fantasia back to their regular life. And they're down to one wish, and so if they don't use it to get back to their regular life, you know, they'll be stuck in Fantasia forever. And the evildoer looks at them and forces them to, to make their last wish. And the, um, and, and the, the hero says, I wish you had a heart. <laughs> and suddenly the evil collapses. And, uh, you know, and it turns out that was the right wish. But I, I continue to wish that there is a way to, um, to understand enough about what's going on, both at the spiritual and material level, to make it possible to win enough people back from the dark side. Because, you know, so many of us genius, particularly in the white community, have been trying to play the middle of the road. We've been trying to, you know, to have one foot in the light and get along with one foot in the dark. I'll never forget my uncle saying to me, you know, God's for Sunday. You don't bring God to the workplace. <laughs> and, you know, so we've all been trying to navigate the middle of the road, and I think we're going through a process where you got to pick one side or the other. Well, and what I'm seeing is that uh, at one point, black folks were the moral compass for this country. Yes. Primarily because we were treated so poorly. But now they have convinced us to drink the Kool-Aid. And right. so that you get rewarded for debauchery, you get rewarded for decadence, you get rewarded for, uh, just taking people down a road that there is no escape if you continue down that road. And so, um, your evolution is going it has the potential to help your community wake up. And what I'm seeing in my community is just this, this horrible belief in, in this, this created reality with greed and, and hedonism and, um, exploitation, get over at all costs is, is, is fracturing what's left of, of our community. Right. Well, I think to a certain extent, we're all going to have to find each other. In other words, um, where are the people who, who truly will, uh, as, as one of Dr. Farrell, who's often on the Slayer Report says, you know, who will commit to the survival of the enlightenment and the best of Western culture. In other words, what we need is a culture dedicated to excellence, cultural excellence. And I think, you know, we're going to have to find each other and we're going to come from all the different, you know, pathways. It's not going to be uh, white or black or male or female. It's sort of people committed to excellence. And it's hard to, you know, look across the room and see which person that is. Well, be, uh we're out here. The community is larger than we think. It's just we don't know each other. Right. So, uh, and we haven't developed a plan. And I, I think in a way that's a good thing because I, I look at 
the success, if you want to call it that, of the Occupy movement. And one of the things, because they had asymmetrical uh, leadership, there was no hierarchy. There was no, or at least it wasn't visible to the naked eye. There was no spokesperson. Uh, they were able to accomplish quite a bit. And I think that's the only way. Otherwise, you end up like King uh, Malcolm and Robert Kennedy and even George Wallace. Remember him? Yep. George Wallace. Okay, so well, he was trying to tell folks what was coming down the pike. It's just that he had a hard time shaking his his past. Right. He let him forget it. And uh, I think the intent was to kill him, but they didn't, and they, you know, they crippled him for life. So, but he, he still, they still accomplished what they wanted, was which was to get him out, get him out of the picture. Right. So, uh, you know, we're we're up against, you know, we're engaged in. I, I don't want to call it spiritual warfare because, I mean, I don't believe the other side is spiritual, although they do worship evil. Um, so I, I just have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. But, uh, if you're committed to righteousness, you won't be forsaken. You might right. not live in a mansion anymore, but you, but you won't. <laughs> no, you'll have to, you'll have to do with a cute country house. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know, you know, I always believe that there's a way. It's uh, it's funny. One of my favorite preachers says, you know, don't you insult my God. My God can do anything. <laughs> and but that's not, you know, we our, our tradition is, you know, for black folks make a way out of no way. You know, that's, yeah. That's, and and we we've abandoned it, and so that's you can see to our detriment, that, and, and that's the result. You can see the consequences of that. Well, this things are certainly seem to be coming to a head, and I, for one, you know, one of the things that also I wanted to mention before we close, Junius, is when in the 90s, when I sort of despaired of what was going on in Washington, and I drove all over the country trying to figure out what was going on, one of the things I discovered was I thought the most dangerous divide and conquer was men versus women, and in fact, if men versus women could get healed, then all the others, including black versus white, could get healed. And, um, you know, because what I saw was men and women pulling their legs out from under the other. You know, they were making each, they were, they were hurting each other's power instead of building each other up. And they were competing with each other instead of building each other up. And, you know, part of it is the male and man and a woman are pretty much the foundation of most families. So, um, and that was, if, if there was anything that you could heal first, if I had to pick one, it would be male and female, because then I think it's a lot easier to do the other. So we didn't get into that today, but it's it's a cross-cut with sort of the divide between black and white as well. Young, old, uh, right. male, female. But I, but I, I totally agree with you, and I think it would mean a radical shift in how we view women and femininity going back even to the historical point where ancient people revered women because they life came to comes through them comes to you and in fact in many places they were they were gods goddesses and with male 
patriarchy that has um that has been squashed and smashed. So we have to go back to balance. We have to right. get get that balance and harmony. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I think you and I have to have more conversations. We can't wait a couple of years so we have a next one. No, we'll, we'll do something, um, and where I can, I'll just call you and we'll, we'll talk, and I'll put it up on Cyberspace Sanctuary and, and uh, the Digital Underground because one of the problems that we have is people profit from the divide. Even though yep. they would be eaten down by it, they find some little corner, a little crumb that they can profit from because of this. And um, actually, they're holding up progress. Right. There's a fortune to be made. There's fortune spent in government money facilitating the divide and conquer. And I think the the big play, you know, that I've seen in my lifetime is the government money and the government credit and it just you know it i've rarely seen a situation where it couldn't do, you know pull people apart because they have you know they can print money they can throw an almost infinite amount of money at it at the same time the black budget depends on a lot of the games going on in the in the you know in the related government money to the divide and conquer and it's also was was a prop up for the 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 major uh, Wall Street banking system, because without the narco right. powers pointed out years and years ago, they had to collapse a long time ago. Right. 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 That, that money, you know, know it's funny because I never understood when I was in Washington why the narcotics trafficking was so important, and I didn't understand how it really leveraged the, the control in a community, and that leveraged into controlling the financial fraud and the, a lot of the government budgets bottom up. So that little little flow of money is not such a little, but you know it get it gets levered in very powerful ways throughout the financial system and becomes much more important than I ever dreamed. And of course, in terms of destroying families, you know, the drugs have been one of the most effective. If you want to get your enemy paying you to destroy, you know, their strength, the drugs has really done the trick. Mm-hmm. And it's not just illicit drugs, it's the pharmaceuticals, too. I mean, they're, yep. they're in now, big time. Yep. Well, Junius, anything else before we close? This has been a really, um, hard to say, a heartwarming conversation, but I think anything to me that gets down to what we have to, you know, I, I'm, one of my favorite preachers used to always say, if we can face it, God can fix it. And I really believe that. I think if we can face it, we can start to find each other and start to make a pathway. So uh, so for me, it is a heartwarming conversation. But I know some of the people listening are going, ah! It's all something positive. No, I mean, like you just said, I mean, that's what Yeshua said. If you see the mountain, you have to speak to the mountain in order to speak to it, have to address it. So uh, that's the first step. And... um it's not about recriminations and pointing fingers because we've all been duped. It's about, okay, let's look beyond that and let's find some common ground. And right. I believe that once we do that, uh, the foundations of the present system will begin to trump, uh, tremble and crumble because they're definitely, that's, they're definitely afraid of us waking up. That's why they keep us 
So, uh, as Malcolm said, uh, bamboozled and discombobulated. Well, I'm always inspired by you, Junius, uh, because I think the hardest thing for me has been to uh, strive to be excellent and maintain excellent habits and be disciplined in the face of, you know, the the environment. And whenever I talk to you or whenever I see you, it's I think, well, God, he can do it. Surely there's a way. <laughs> so it's always uh, no, it it um. We're, we're sending out energy and our thoughts and our words and our deeds and they will come back. They, they, it's, it's like the, the pebble in the pond. Yeah. And we may never know who we've impacted, but trust me, you're, you're impacting a lot of people. But Junius, you have a wonderful day and we will, we will send you, uh, our, our, uh, our files as, uh, as soon as we have them up, okay? Okay, and we'll contact and we'll we'll hook up a time when you and I can do this uh, where I'm asking the questions. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I would love it. Okay. Well, it'll okay. Be- okay. All right. All right. Good one. Thank you very much. We thank Catherine Austin Fitz for inviting us on to the Solari Report. We will return the favor in January. Right now, it looks like our schedule will allow sometime in the middle to late January. Looking forward to that. And as we close out today's program, this is Junius Ricardo Stanton reminding you, engage in mental decolonization. Free your mind. The rest will follow. Stay strong. Cyberspace is the place. You've been listening to the Cyberspace Sanctuary, a safe house for your mind on the Blake Radio Network with Junius Ricardo Stanton. Thank you for logging on. We invite you to tune in again and engage in mental decolonization. Free your mind, the rest will follow. That no corporation incorporates, no denominations, faith dominates, and no court is going to try it.